Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joe Wanasek, and Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. Joey Sturgis and Joel Wanasek are out. Joel's studio doesn't exist. He's moving and uh, in the middle of boxes and gear piled to the ceilings and painting walls and who the hell knows what's going on with that. And uh, Joey's busy because... Um, over at JST, we're releasing a plugin tonight. By the time this comes out, the plugin will have already been released. So if uh, you haven't heard of it, it's called Tominator, and it's designed to reduce the bleed from mics on natural drums. Super effective and will cut down your manual gating time by a lot. It's great. I've mm. messed with it quite a bit. So it's just me, and with me is special guest, Mr. Logan Mater. How are you doing, dude? Good, man. Good to be here. Yeah, thank, thanks for being here. I'm sure most of you know who Logan is, but uh, if you don't, you should, and you will after this. Um, you may know him from a while ago. He was in Machine Head. He's been in Soulfly. He's now in a band called Once Human. He's scored soundtracks, worked with bands in the studio like Gojira, Devil Driver, Five Finger Death Punch, Fear Factory, Soulfly, Devil You Know. You've got a pretty long list of awesome stuff, man, that you've worked on. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty good when you put it like that. I guess I keep uh, did, busy. <laughs> did I miss anything cool? Uh, I mean, you kind of hit the... You hit it. Hit, you hit, the, you hit the it pretty, Yeah, you, you covered it pretty well there, yeah. Um, so you're kind of like me, you are a guitar player who moved into production or did you start in production first and then moved to guitar? No, I started in guitar and, uh, just a threat Bay area thrash metal kid, teenager growing up in Oakland. Uh, my passion was metal and I wanted to be a guitar player. So I got a guitar and taught myself how to play it. And I sat in my bedroom and played guitar all day, every day, uh, for several years, and then joined a band called Machine Head, and that was my first band. Was the was the band already known when you joined, or did you join when it was still a local band? No, I was a, a co-founding member. So Rob Flynn, oh wow, started the band, and he brought Adam Deuce in as bass player, and Adam started playing some riffs that I had written. And Rob was like, what's that? That's cool. He's like, yeah, these are Logan's riffs. You should bring Logan in the band. So uh, there I was. And then uh, we got a drummer by the name of Tony Costanza. He was the original drummer for a short period of time. And then he left. And we got Chris Contos. And that was the completed lineup for the first album. And just out of curiosity, how long was it between the time that you joined and when the band, I guess, got signed and became a thing? Okay, so it was June of 1992. The band formed officially, and uh, we signed the deal in October '93 with Roadrunner. Uh, Monty Connor signed us to Roadrunner, and uh, he got the demo from Borovoy Kurgan, who is the founder of Blabbermouth. He used to be a writer for, uh, I think, Metal Maniacs back mm -hmm. in the day, and he got a hold of the this cassette demo that we did and um, sent it to Monty, and Monty loved it. 
And he actually offered a deal before even seeing the band live. And then, um, yeah, I moved pretty quickly from there. We uh, did a record with Colin Richardson. And uh, that was an amazing experience to be in like a really nice studio and work with the great producer and like to have that experience. And it was all on two inch tape, you know. Was that your first time in the studio? Or like first time in like a real studio? Yeah, yeah, totally. My first time in a studio was doing the demo like on a 16 track, you know, home studio somewhere in Oakland when we did the first Machine Head demo. And then the next was uh, Fantasy Recording in Berkeley, which is a really nice room there. And uh, yeah, it was full blown, like full production, two inch tape recording. And we were in the room with the drummer getting the drum tracks with scratch guitars going and uh you know really organic no editing and all old school organic you got to play every note kind of thing (laughs) not how it's done now (laughs) well (laughs) well some bands uh, that it seems like some bands are starting to move in that direction some productions are starting to go back towards that yeah thankfully so I've worked with Colin as well. Um, mm-hmm. He mixed my band when we got signed to Roadrunner like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that was not my first time in a studio or anything. I had already been producing, but it was my first time like, it was my first like experience with like a, you know, heavy hitter. Uh-huh. Was it with a Doth the band was? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was with Doth, signed by Monty too. Yeah, cool. Yeah, he's like my music industry dad love that guy but um he uh colin the thing that blew my mind about colin was just he had this reputation for taking a long time and so i was fully expecting to go to london and spend forever with him and i did it was like three and a half weeks on the mix but the thing is he wasn't fucking around taking a long time he just would not move forward until he thought it was exactly right Mm -hmm. it's just his standards were so damn high it was mind-blowing. Was it kind of like that for you when you worked with them? Well, I didn't uh, I didn't really have anything to compare it to because it was my first experience. I know that we, we tracked at Fantasy and mixed in the same studio, Burn My Eyes. And then when we took the mixes home, we didn't like what we were hearing. It's like some things were not translating accurately, and we were like, fuck, we got to remix this thing. So we went to... Scream Studios in LA. I don't think think that place is still there, but they have, you know, like a nice SSL and this is like an SSL mix and, you know, on tape. And we did the mix there. It was two weeks. Yeah, it was two weeks, you know, which is kind of a long time to mix a record, but when it's analog and, you know, you really do have to make sure it's right before you move on because the recall if you want to go back and change something it's like four hours just to recall the console and and the outboard gear and so yeah two weeks and we nailed it and it sounds like that mix i love it even today it's still like oh holds up it still holds up yeah he's very meticulous and very analog yeah he 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 mixed the doth on a neve console Mm -hmm. um and there was it was kind of mind blowing for me because I had always been working in the box before that, and so when we got there and he did the first song, it took like five days or something, and it was one of those things where it was kind of like okay, this is kind of it. Like once it's done, it's done, and that kind of that messed with me because I'm so used to just being able to 
open a file. Yeah, but that was it. And then, and then the board crashed two days later and lost all the recalls. Anyways, oh. so oh. there was no going. <laughs> there's no going back. But uh, but you know what? We talk about this a lot on this podcast. I think that there's something to be said for having to commit. Yeah, you know, like the level of decisions and choices that you make when you know that you can't do it over. You know, sometimes you make better decisions that way. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not scared of that, too. I, I kind of, like, I go that route. I mean, in general, even with Pro Tools, I know you can always backtrack and, you know, retrace your steps and completely re- redo something. But, you know, when I feel like it's good, it's I'll go, I'll print it and and move on. I, I think that that's a really great way to work. That's actually how I do it, how Joey does it as well. Yeah. It's just the uh, the thing we say is that if you print something you don't like, it'll teach you to uh, not print something you don't like in the future. Yeah. So I guess when you're working nowadays, do you ever work with younger bands who have no concept at all of how things used to be done? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, most of the bands have never done it you know any other way but I still work like uh, there's a band called Wasp that's you know been around for 30 years do you know yeah. the band Wasp yeah I, I mixed their last three albums I'm going to be mixing their next couple of records as well and uh, they still record on tape and they dump into Pro Tools after and the, and Blackie he just he likes the, the analog harmonic distortion and he just that's how he does things and so it's cool to work with, you know, that vibe still. I also started producing and engineering in a time period where it was it was still transitional from digital digital becoming a standard and still analog existing in most studios and I did a lot of tape recording as an engineer and uh learned the whole analog world from that point of view on a console with tape. So, do you miss it? Um, no. Well, I mean, no. I mean, the convenience and the efficiency from digital is, you know, it's it outweighs to me. It outweighs all of that. It's nice when I when I track drums, I go into a big room and I light it all up with the, all the good mic pre's and you know, you yeah, got, you gotta have the nice big size room and good pre's. You gotta do that. Yeah. You kind of got to do that. There's kind of no, in my experience, there's no getting around that part of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, If you got to go all the way there or just do MIDI. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really, really good point. And I I tell this to people all the time, which is if you're not going to go all the way with drums, kind of don't bother. Yeah. Because it's not worth it. It's not worth the hassle. It's just not. um, I know that your ego and your pride might be telling you to... uh, record the drums because at least it's a performance but I don't know I think that if you're not gonna there's so many moving pieces there's so yeah. m- many things to deal with if you're not gonna do it right just yeah program yeah but it's not that hard to do it right you, you know you, these days I'll no. take, take three days to do a full album or two even two days and get the whole thing done and I always hire a tech like uh, I Good. like Angel City Drumworks guy. I, I've used Drum Doctor before, but like I usually go to John at Angel City, and he'll come with a truck full of snares and any other drums that I might want to audition, and most importantly, like a big selection of good-sounding cymbals that I can try 
all of them until they're all right. Because being an acoustic animal, it's like it's got to sound right in the room. You can't like it's not like plugging a guitar in and tweaking the amp. It's like it's it is what it is. It's got to sound good in the room. And it, this tuning sweet spot for every drum is you know is different and I don't know how to tune drums and most drummers don't know how to tune drums so <laughs> it's, it's worth it to spend to spend the extra budget on having a guy there and make sure that is done right and maintained throughout the session you know it, I also work with a drum tech when I track and I have for like the past four years or five years and the the way that I phrase it to bands is yes I could tune your drums okay like decently mm -hmm. but wouldn't you rather have someone who's an expert at it doing it like an expert and then you can use me for my expertise which would be my ears and where to put the mics and things like that like yeah. rather than waste my ears on hitting drums wow. and uh and that get get someone who's that's their life that's what they do yeah and it saves time too because absolutely yeah you need to listen through the mics and have them in there and tell them up or down or this and that hearing it on the back end you know have you always used one a drum tech well in the very beginning when i first started no i mean like i'm talking like nine you know like around the early 2000s i did sessions i was working as an engineer in a b-level studio in hollywood still kind of apprenticing and but doing sessions and hustling up jobs on my own and if there, there often wouldn't be a budget for a drum tech so I was like you know make the best of it <laughs> but I quickly I mean <laughs> I knew if there's a budget you gotta have someone in there that can can handle that and then you know I won't do it and quickly uh, thereafter I would never do sessions without having it you know, handled by a good tech. Well, the difference is just night and day. Yeah. I think that a lot of people don't understand what a difference greatly recorded source tracks make. Makes all all the difference. Yeah, it seriously does. I mean, it's like when you get a session that's well recorded, just putting faders up is, you know, is already 50% of the way there, if not more. Yeah. Yeah, you can tell right away if it's going to be easy or extremely difficult to make it sound good when you get a mix like that. Yeah. So what made you want to start recording? Speaking of two, the early 2000s and you hustling up side work and all that, like how did that even come about in the first place? Well, it started with being in Machine Head and getting to have that studio experience. I loved it. Like to me, that was like, you know, part of the dream, you know, and... uh I was I just loved the vibe of being in the studio. I I was really curious about technical aspects of the recording process and what does this do? What does that do? Why did we do that? And really absorbed a lot of what was happening while I was you know being a guitar player in a band. And uh, you know I almost felt like that part of being in a band was half of it. You know, there's that the rock star playing in front of a hundred thousand people touring and going all over the world is half of it and then the creative and production part of it for me was the other half of it so i was always really into it from the beginning and then like when i was in soulfly i got a a roland hard disk recorder like a 16 one of those old vs 1680s and i started like just fucking around making demos with drum machine and riffs and just you know recording stuff that i would write and you know 
getting into it and realizing I want to do this more. And so I just decided uh, one day that that's what I'm going to do. And it, and uh, so I got like I I got a job just at, like that. Well, I mean, just just <laughs> this is it. I made that. Yeah, I made that decision. Like I really wanted to do that, and whatever it would take to to get me there. I knew it wasn't going to be easy. It was like even though I was the guy from a pretty famous band and you know it's a totally different world to go into behind the scenes and producing you can't just like show up and say I want to do this and here I am and <laughs> pay me <laughs> um, <laughs> I ha- uh, so I, I was humbled and I took a job for $10 an hour as a you know a, an engineer I was I was actually engineering I wasn't just an assistant getting coffee but I was learning and working on any little shitty demo I could get my hands on and working on whatever project would come into the studio just as the in-house engineer and learning along the way. And, um, yeah, even uh, the reason I got that job is because I hustled up a mix job. This is <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's like someone was like, I don't know how it came, but I was like, yeah, I'll mix your record. And this, and I had never mixed a record before. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um a ballsy. Was, yeah, I was like, jump in the fire and do it. So I go into this studio and I I hired the studio and I, I was really counting on the owner of the studio to kind of like, you know, help me out. And uh, so I get going and it was cool. We got the tracks up and started going and um, all of a sudden he's like, oh, fuck it. He, he would do this often. He he double booked and he's like, I got to. I got to bump you guys. I got him. And I'm like, I can't bump these guys. They like flew in to LA to work on this. And he's like, okay. He set me up like a digital performer rig in another room of his studio. And, and I took the sessions and just like started work, you know, prepping, doing samples and general gain structures. And I had no idea how to use digital performer. I just, he just taught me along the way and I would ask him questions and I pretty much figured it out. Uh, by the time I was done with the mix, he was like, damn, you really, you know, picked it up quick. So he gave me a job as an engineer there. And, um, you know, I picked up on the the ins and outs of the room and the general protocol of tracking the way he does there really quickly. So I got that job. So wait, 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 that mix didn't totally suck? Well, <laughs> I mean, it got... How did it, how did it turn out? It got approved. I mean, it... It got approved by the artist. <laughs> that, that, Does that mean it suck? I, I mean, know. does it suck? I don't want to hear it. <laughs> well, you know, like first first mixes are always scary. Yeah, I can't. I can't tell you that it sucked, but I wouldn't tell you that it was it was good. But we got the job done, and then I learned Pro Tools. I started working in a little bit freelance in some other rooms, and. Um, I got on a Pro Tools rig and I started learning Pro Tools and I actually taught the owner of the studio that I was working at. I was like, dude, you need to move to Pro Tools. The digital performer sucks. And so he got a rig. (laughs) I taught him Pro Tools then like a few months later. Dude, digital performer. That's what I used before Pro Tools too. Yeah. Uh, No good. I mean, you could record with it, but yeah. When I got I, when I got on Pro Tools, I was like, "Yeah, this is what it feels like to be a man." Like, yeah. digital performer was just not okay. Yeah, and in the fundamentals too, you can tell like it's more of an extension, it, or it's more of an analog simulation. Just the way that's it's laid out, with the mixer and the way the signal flows, and the way you go to you know get to certain things. It's like it feels more like a virtual studio than 
and then uh, Performer, or even some of the others. Even though like Cubase and Logic are really good, and I know like a lot of composers use Cubase for scoring because it does have a lot of features that are more score friendly. But for like audio, it's Pro Tools is the one. So speaking of scoring, how did that come about? And did you use Pro Tools when you scored like? Ninja 2. Yeah, I did. I used Pro Tools. It's kind of the same thing as the uh, the first mix I did. I was like, yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna do this. I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I somehow pulled it off. Well, here's how I pulled it off. I, I collaborated with a guy named Gerard Marino, who is a serious, badass composer. He's done a bunch of movies. He did the the game God of War 1, 2, and 3 and Spider-Man 1 and 2. He's a friend of mine. And, nice. And he's a really, really good composer and schooled Berkeley, you know, and like he can conduct an orchestra. And, and so I brought him in. I, the real deal. I got the gig, yeah. And I brought him in to collaborate. So that was my that was my safety net and my wingman. And we, we split the cues up. Basically, I did half the cues and he did half the cues. And I had, uh, you know some guidance from him along the way um but i pulled it off you know it's like at the end of the day it's it's a totally different world from making records it's like you know it's it's a totally different world and i i learned quickly what was needed to have you know needed to be achieved with the music in a scene for example and you know it's an action movie so you could get pretty you could get pretty dense and energetic with it but just the the fundamentals of translating emotion with sound and with music and uh in the vibe and the, the the pace of the scene it's like it's a really fine art and i'm i'm not like you know i can't call myself like a film composer but i did pull it off i did another movie as well and uh i really i enjoyed the process and i liked working with gerard he's you know he's badass he can take uh and he uses Cubase, and his instruments library is incredible. He can do any orchestral arrangement, and you can't tell that it's fake. And um, it's pretty amazing how he can do that. Yeah, on that level. Yeah, so a lot of my stuff, like, I would need help. or Well, I was also using this guitar viola. I was playing, like, bowed, a bowed instrument that's like a guitar, but it's a viola guitar thing, and using that to get the organics and, and then doing Wait, my what? string. Oh, this instrument called a guitar vo. Do you know what that guitar is? Guitar vo. I have yeah. not heard of that. Yeah, check it out. It's really cool. You know who kills it is Tyler Bates. Uh, he's a composer from Three Hundred and X Men. I'm I'm uh, actually gonna look this up right now. So guitar like guitar. Now look at look Tyler Bates guitar vo. Uh, three hundred. Okay. Or, or was it? It's, it's an X Men scene, and he'll pr- he'll play the shit out of that thing. He'll, but it's got frets like a guitar. Oh, guitar viol. Okay, viol, I thought yeah. you were saying vo. Um, whatever. Like yeah. viol, like viola. Oh, that is an interesting looking instrument. Yeah. So it's got a pickup. So do you play with a bow? Yeah, you play with a bow. You can pick it too. So it's got the okay. the arch on the bridge, so you can bow it, but you can also pick it. But for a guitar player, it's really easier because you know it's got it's tuned and it's got frets like six strings you know like a guitar yeah and uh, so it was pretty natural for you to adjust to it i guess yeah i mean i wasn't like shredding on it but i was doing lines and parts that you know were executed well and you know yeah but tyler that's kind of fascinating so what were you saying about tyler well he's just he's really good at playing that thing like he'll 
if you have time, check out this uh, performance he does where he'll do like looping pedals and he'll do like a whole arrangement using like loop, you know, looping parts and, and then layering and layering and layering and it's a full arrangement all by one guy, like one man band kind of thing. Wow. All right. I'm definitely checking that out. Um, I'm, I'm curious. When you were saying that the translation of emotion into sound was different when it comes to film scoring as opposed to working with, you know, bands or something. Yeah. Metal. Because I'm a metal. <laughs> you were, how, could, could you elaborate on that a little? Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's like, if I'm, I'm a metal guy, it's like the general vibe is usually aggressive, dramatic, powerful, dark, all those things, you know. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the standard emotional uh, source for metal, you know. So, you know, when working on a scene where I'm supposed to use, uh, um, like, you know, authentic uh, Japanese instrumentation and and do music that's not common for me to do kind of thing. And, like, I don't know. It's just like... (laughs) How did you get inside of that? In, In the job? How did I... Or inside, yeah. Like how, uh, the reason I'm asking is because I'm sure you're familiar, like, with when a metal band tries to do an orchestral track that the drummer wrote. Often it sucks balls, and it's like usually when you leave a metal band to their own devices and they write symphonic stuff or soundtracky stuff, it's like horrible. Like they don't know what the fuck they're doing. It's just bad shit. And um, and lots of times also you hear metal dudes try to leave the genre and it just doesn't sound yeah. cool. So, because they can't get away from being metal dudes, so I'm just, I'm wondering how you got your head into that space for doing well, I j- something that doesn't fit the dark, aggressive... Yeah, it was unfamiliar to me, but at the same time, it's like, I'm I'm an all-feel. I just feel and hear. I don't know music theory, I never studied it, or I don't know why a scale is what it is, or, but I, I feel it. And I hear it, and that's what I did with the with the scenes. You know, I mean, action, the action parts came more naturally. I have done a lot of music for trailers before I had done the, the film. And that was just me fucking around with, like, hybridized orchestral mixed with electronica and, uh, you know, like, symphonic percussion and just doing high-energy action-type music for trailers so i had you know i had a a bit of experience in in that world going into it but again it was just like i tried to just let go and feel what the director wanted me to feel and then try to picture that in colors and in sound and and uh, and try to express it and then delete it and do it again and delete it and do it again and again until i got it (laughs) so uh, how long do you think that it took you until you, I guess, hit a flow with that stuff? Um, it was like pretty high. It's a high, kind of a high pressure, long hours, high stress, frustrating job, and it, that's how it goes because you know you're working for the director, you're working for the music supervisor, and then there's producers and things, and everyone comes in and they. Often they'll have, okay, when you do listening sessions, you'll get feedback, okay, this is working, this is not working, and it's hard to figure out, like, exactly what they think they want sometimes, 
and it can be frustrating. And often you end up right back where we started after trying and jumping through hoops and trying all these other things that they suggested. But so in that respect, it's it's a bit like working for somebody, like a job kind of thing. It's less artistic in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But I know it always feels good when you get the approval and you get there, even though it's like you pulled your hair out and it sucked and you you wanted you wanted to quit, <laughs> but you you know you finally get there. Do you ever feel like it's that way mixing records for A and R guys? Oh. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, it can be. I don't know. I think with my mixing, it used to be, I used to run into that more so, but I think now I've advanced in my, my mixing to the point that like, I know how to get there after a couple of, get there quicker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, and the revisions are usually like really minor kind of things, you know. I think I cut you off. You were saying something earlier. Oh, well, just the in the realm of like visual media music I did uh, I did half of the soundtrack for Metal Gear Rising game for Konami like in 2013 and that was really challenging and frustrating and with the whole getting approved getting the stuff approved but it was fun it was you know because it was metal it was a hybrid of industrial metal orchestral and like EDM (laughs) songs and then so they were they were songs that would play during the boss fights but they they weren't like so then they had vocals as well and I had to write all the lyrics and and produce it and I played a lot of the most of the guitars and I had some other guitar players come in I had Bill Hudson in on some solos and I had Nita oh he's yeah, really he's amazing. good and I had Nita Strauss on a couple tracks as well and um also really yeah, good yeah she's great and then um yeah that that was I felt like, oh, this is going to be easy. They want metal songs. And then I did the first one, and they were like, yeah, this is great. And they approved it. And then a week later, they're like, no, it's not approved. We don't like it at all. We want to change everything. And I was like, oh, my God, what the fuck? <laughs> so it was a lot a lot of trying to figure out what it is that they think they want when it's they, they don't exactly speak music. You know, these are game writers, game producers, publishers, and music supervisors that have you know some knowledge of music or at least they're supposed to but still like that and there were there was a language barrier because these are ja- there was a japanese client so there was a, it was difficult to get to the finish line on those ones but we did it's interesting that you say this because one of our very first podcast episodes i think episode number two is called musical translator mm-hmm. and it's about how a producer's job at the end of the day is to be a musical translator between the artist and what you hear. So you're supposed to translate what they actually want, not what they say they want, but you're supposed to translate what they actually want into sound. And so it sounds like it's the exact same thing, but I'm just wondering how you... What am I trying to say? I was just wondering how you went about actually understanding what they wanted if it was that difficult is it was it just trial and error or did you have a thought process behind it um there was a lot of trial and error so how about this okay how about this okay how about that you know kind of thing but Mm -hmm. so lots of options yeah they like it when you i guess it's it's helpful to give options because then one's usually better than the other and at least you know they they have something to like better than than something else but I don't know. I guess it's different with every with every job and with every client. You just gotta uh, go with it, 
can feel it. One thing, one thing that struck me a long time ago was working with artists who would design T-shirts for my band, and if I didn't like the design, it was always tough to be like start from scratch. But then when we started working with this other artist after going through a few who, whenever we would hire him to do a design, he would send us like four designs, pick one, we'll go with that, and we'll work on that. So it was very, very rare that out of the four options that I would totally hate everything. It would be possible that maybe some, they weren't great, but I saw potential in yeah. one. Sometimes all four were great, mm-hmm. but it was only happened once or twice that I didn't like any of the options at all. And so I started to notice that this guy is getting a ton of work and this is how he works, how he does stuff. He gives mm-hmm. options. And then um, mastering guy, Alan Duchess, who uh, I've worked with a ton. I've worked with a bunch of different mastering guys over the years. And one thing that I always ran into a wall over was getting revisions done because what if you didn't like their their take on it? It used to be so expensive mm-hmm. And it was like, if you want a revision, you have to just pay for a master all over again. He just would send you two versions, Mm -hmm. A and B, always. That's just what he did. And I think that's one of the big reasons that a lot of people just always went to him because he would work with you on it. And so even if he didn't get it right at the beginning, and lots of times he didn't get it right at the beginning, he always got it right by the end because he gave you options and he worked with you on it. So sounds like there's a little bit of that going on with the non-music people in Gameland. Yeah, definitely it helps. Uh, I think the more the better. When I get mastering done, I don't like to get too many versions because usually they're like there's so little difference between the versions that it's like I don't even know if I hear it or not. But but yeah, I totally agree. Oh, this this would be like this would be like here's one all analog. Here's one no analog yeah. or something like that yeah like obvious yeah cool it would be it would be very obvious differences or like here's one that i made as loud as i could get without distortion here's one that is more dynamic yeah, yeah with the game thing it was like options for for various sections was helpful to have but they it got very meticulous because it was playing during you know the these songs were cut into like four sections. There would be the intro that plays once and then a main looping section that would be for like two minutes that would loop as long as the, it needed to seamlessly during the fight, but it could then could kick into a B, a B section and then an outro section triggered by the game engine. So the, you know, that, that whole was, that was completely new to me and uh, it was a little bit challenging to, uh, to like think in that mindset when I was doing these songs and and then making stems. I never made so many stems in my life too because I wanted them like every revision I had to make full stems and they had to like dovetail perfectly and be cut exact just like to to fit with the looping in the game engine and like it was a it was a good learning experience to to do that. I'm sensing a pattern here. Is that you like to throw yourself in the deep end? Yeah, <laughs> with stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's part of me. I said my, my DNA. I guess I like. I don't. I don't like. I just go all the way. It's a curse and a blessing. It's like I've got this overachiever, you know, thing, and then at the same time I have like. A, 
a self-destructive, like uh, uh, the 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 exact opposite <laughs> dark side of it that like I guess comes with the territory. So as long as I keep that dark side in check, I can uh, I can uh, keep moving forward and you know living. How do you keep it in check? Uh, Asking for a friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I guess it's a fundamental thing, you know. Once you know where those paths lead, you got to just, you know, say no to walking through certain doors and know that you want to, you know, stay on track and keep moving forward. Eye on the prize. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've never, I don't know, the, the way I've always seen the whole achievement thing and taking risks is that... This line of work is so risky and it's so hard to make something of yourself in it that if you don't go balls out, you're probably going to fail. Yeah. So it's actually riskier to not go balls out, it is. in my opinion. So play, playing it safe is actually riskier than going the risky route and going balls out. I totally agree. And, you know, you got to be ready for a lot of rejection and and you got to have thick skin and just you know, because not every project is going to win, and but that shouldn't stop you, and it never stopped me. Especially getting in, into the beginning of my producer career and always fighting for acceptance and to like you know get the gig or to get the placement or to you know the have the song you're writing go on somebody's song and competing with all these other talented people and uh, your hopes are up and then you're crushed. And then, but you got to get back up and just keep going and know that every step is a step forward, even if it feels like you just fell down a fucking hole. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess how long would you stay crushed for? Is it a day, a week, a month? In the beginning, um, it it would stick a little, yeah, just stick for for a little while. But then I was like, well, fuck this. You know, like, on to the next. Let's go. Pick it up and go. Yeah, that's kind of how I see it, too. It's like, yeah, once it this. It does sting, of course, if you're human and not a sociopath. But um, but the thing is that it's over. It's like if you didn't get it, yeah. it's over. So, well, what are you doing if you're dwelling? Like you're not, you can't go back in time and change the outcome yeah. of that rejection. So yeah, I think I naturally built up like this tolerance or this protective layer where I would think going into something. Just already being prepared for this, this, this a long shot. This might not happen. This is like against the odds to get this one, but we're going to try anyway and maybe we'll get it. And it's like, it will go from 10% winning to 90% rejection. And little by little, like it, the ratio of winning was going up to the point where it's like, okay, it's enough to, you know, enough to sustain and validate what I'm doing. So I'm sure you still deal with rejection. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just a normal fact of working in this yeah. field. Yeah. Does it still bother you? Um, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still human and I'm not a, socio- a sociopath. So, I mean, yeah, because I'm passionate about what I do and I love what I do and I want it, to, I want it all to win. But, you know, I'm, I'm a realist and I've uh, been doing this long enough to know that not everything is going to be... Uh, a number one gold record, you know, or, or whatever, you know. You ever ever worked with a band where you got really into it and uh, like 
worked your ass off and were like, this is going to be the band. And they kind of break up before the album even comes out and nobody gives a shit. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. As opposed to a band where you're like, who the fuck is going to like this? And then it gets big. I've had a bit of both of that. Both of those. Um, I mean, there's one, like, I've done production deals. I, I really don't do it anymore um, because it's very time-consuming and it's a high risk. But, like, in the mid-2000s, I was, like, really driven to discover new talent and help them do production deal, help them write songs, put the band together, and then package it up and shop it and try to get it signed. That was, like, a big thing I wanted to do. After I had got to the point where Mm -hmm. I was, like, a bit of a name as a freelance producer and a mixer, I wanted to go into that creative end of it, talent development. And I did it uh, with a band called Domin. I actually got them signed to Roadrunner through Monty around 2008. Mm -hmm. I remember that band. Great band. And uh, that record came out, and I felt like, oh, that was a big win, you know? Like, uh, I found this guy and, you know, did the whole record... (laughs) with a partner of mine um, at the time and um, helped them put their band together and, you know, offered guidance that was more on the manager side and got them signed. And uh, that was was like, okay, cool, it it can be done. And I felt really good about that. And then I did another one and it was a metal band, me and the same guy, Lucas Banker, that I used to work with a lot. He's a friend of mine. We put this metal band together and the whole concept and co-wrote the music with the singer and been put a band together around him and designed the look and some ancillary content like a comic book, a motion comic book and all this story and we got it signed to Virgin we got a huge deal from Virgin through Rob Stevenson when he was the president there and then uh, right when we got the offer we partnered it with Rick Sales who was a manager for Slayer to, to uh, par- partner with mm-hmm. us on the whole project because we, we were like, okay, this is getting serious now. We need we need some, you know, serious big baller manager help here and he's definitely one of the best in the business. So, yeah, everything was perfect and, like, so we got the deal, closed it, did the record, the record was accepted, started the promo process, the, the beginning stages of marketing and... Uh, had a release date on the books, and then Rob Stevenson got fired from Virgin, and the new president came in like within a month, and was like in an A and R meeting. Okay, what's this? Who's what's this metal band here? Like, oh, that's the, uh, the Kill Core, and he's like, okay, who in this room is gonna raise their hand and tell me that they're gonna break this band? And of course, <laughs> nobody spoke up. They didn't want to lose their job over it or risk anything. It's like, so the band got dropped before it came out, shelved and dropped. And so that never happened. So there was a big letdown. That was a big letdown for me. But still a win in the in the fact that we took this one singer and built this whole concept and a band and a record and got its big record deal and partnered with Rick on it. And like it had all that... And then it's really typical for a major label president to go from one label to another, and then things change when the new guy comes in. And a lot of bands suffer from those transitions. And it sucks for the bands because yeah, it's totally out of their control. Yeah, and and uh, you know that's 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 what happens. That's another one of the reasons like going with the indie label for new bands, 
even then, but more so now, is a smarter route for a developing band to go from zero to somewhere, at least, you know, with a lower risk. You know, this, there's another interesting point in what you just said in that whole story about the A&R meeting is I think that one thing that young bands should do when getting signed to a label is to actually travel to the label and meet the people there and try to get a feeler for if the entire label is behind the band or if it's just like the A&R guys, like Pet Project. Because if the whole label isn't like team your band, it's going to be tough to get the publicist, the in-house publicist to care or the product manager to care or, you know, anybody to care when, when they have a bunch of other bands too. So... It's important to know that it's not just your A&R guy who cares. It's important to know that the whole yeah. team is going to be behind your band. If they're, if they're not, you're going to have a tough time. Yeah, it's, it's totally true. I mean, the product manager is very important, and the publicist is very important. The digital team is all very important, and uh, relationships are the key. So, yeah, if, if you can't make those connections and bond and build and maintain relationships with all the moving parts that matter, then it's not going to go as well as it could, if at all. No. Well, they, it's just, and it's not because they're bad people or trying to fuck the band over. That's something that a lot of people need to get out of their heads. It's that they have more work than they have hours in the day for. And they're going to focus number one on the priorities that the, the guys on top say should be prioritized. So, like, if you're on Roadrunner, Slipknot's going to be the priority, yeah. of course. On any label, they're going to have their their quote-unquote Slipknot band mm-hmm. where that's the priority no matter what. But, you know, once once you start going down the ladder, a lot of it is, well, the person has the choice if they're going to push this yeah. or that or that. Yeah. And uh, the more they, they like you, the more likely... The more they believe in you and like you, the more likely they're going to help you. And uh, again, it's not because they're bad people or anything. It's just because they're humans with X amount of time to devote and way more bands than ours. Yeah, you're totally right. It's like, and it goes throughout the business in general. It's like relationships are the music business more than anything else. I mean, yeah, good music, good talent, and good everything, but like... As far as business goes, relationships are all of it. It's true. And I don't think, though, that you have to be friends with everybody because you can't possibly be friends with everybody. You know, there are going to be some people that you clash with, and there are some motherfuckers in this business, um, <laughs> like some booking agent. Well, you can't be friends with everybody, but there's definitely people that you cannot be enemy enemies with or else you're you're fucked, you know? So Yes. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> That's absolutely right. I think um you should at least try to be on like decent terms with as many people as possible. Well, as an artist, it's like for band guys, it's it's not, it's not that hard. It's easy. They like because I do management as well, and I go, I like, I'm behind the scenes, and I'm in a band, and I'm, I'm like playing all these roles and trying to juggle it all. But I think band members need to be super nice and need to be liked, you know, more than anything, and assume 
They need to assume that anyone, who, whoever, it's if it's a radio promoter or a journalist or a, somebody from a label or a booking agent that they don't even know, like they should assume that everyone is important and making a good impression and being well-liked is going to benefit their career uh, immensely over time. Just treat everyone like yeah. gold. Just, you know, be, be, fucking, be a good person, be super nice and, you know while being yourself at the same time, of course, but yeah. In some way, <laughs> I was going to say, in some ways it's easier said than done, but at the same time, it just is what it is. Like, you're right, that's how you have to approach it. Um, and I know this from my own experience of not always being that way, that it bit me in the ass when I wasn't that way. And I just know that the more people you get along with, the better, because it's a very, very small world. The music game is very, very small. Yeah, yeah. And the gatekeepers have been there for a long time, and they're going to be there long after you're gone. So it's like, it's important to leave a, the right footprint because, you know, you need these people, and that's that's just how it is. You know, it's interesting. The uh, I remember a few years ago, it kind of became a thing for bands to go completely indie and like Nine Inch Nails did and Radio yeah. did and so all these smaller bands were like we can do it too and it's like no mm. you can't I mean yeah yeah you can but no you can't like you can if you're like the the outlier you know the total outlier who happens to be the one band that is genius musically and genius business wise and comes around at the right place in the right time and you know somehow everything just works out you know, all all the lights are green down the down that road, and they happen to be an indie success. But that is not the norm. That's definitely an exception, a very tiny exception. And for the majority of you guys out there, whether you're a producer or an artist or whatever, you're going to have to deal with the industry. And there's kind of no way around yeah. it. Uh, so be cool. <laughs> but you need, you know, you need that. You need the people that are good at, at certain jobs that are like publicists and. You need a booking agent. These things are very important, and these are done by people who do that as their career. That's their life, and that's all they do, and they're fucking good at it. And yeah, you need you need them. You can't do all just do all those things on your own. I mean, like I said, the, I guess there is the exception here and there, but a good publicist is worth their weight in gold, in my yeah. opinion. And uh, like our buddy George. The, he's incredible. I, it's to. I'm always blown away by how easily a really good publicist can make mountains move with like a phone call. Yeah, George Valley is amazing. I'm really, really lucky to have him working my band right now. I'm not affiliated. Like, I mean, I'm on an indie label with Once Human. It's a German label called Ear Music. That's it's a good. That's a good label. Like, they're not. They're doing well financially because they have bands like Deep Purple and like, I don't know, they have Dragon mm -hmm. Force, they have Baby Metal in Europe and older bands like Foreigner and Deep Purple, they make, they make a lot of money for their company. So this they're, they're in good shape. But in America, it's like, I, I went ahead and like, I was able to get George to, to work publicity for my band and I was even willing to pay for it out of my own pocket. And so I just, I told my label, I'm hiring this guy for our publicity in America and uh, if you want to pay for it that'd be great he's amazing and they they did they brought him on and I'm fucking like he's 
moved mountains for us, literally. My singer's on the cover of Revolver coming out in February, and um, he's gotten us, like, it's like we're getting major label publicity level stuff out of George, and I'm on an indie, and I'm in an extreme, like, death metal band, so... Um, yeah, yeah. That exact. That's exactly right. I had a very similar experience when uh, I did a guitar album called Avalanche of Worms with the other guitar player from Doth mm-hmm. and uh, Sean Reinert from Cynic. We did it in like 2009 or something, came, or came out in 2010. I don't remember, but it was on a really small label. We weren't like on Roadrunner or Century Media, and they had an in-house publicist who was like just some 21-year-old kid, and. Uh, I mean, the dude who ran the label is really cool, but this publicist kid was just out of... He was a good kid, but he was just out of his element, basically. Like, he couldn't... Like, we had just come from, like, Roadrunner and stuff with, like, Amy, and were looking to get this record out there, and this kid didn't have any contacts. He, like, wanted me to give him my contacts. Mm. I was like, this is Mm. not happening. And uh, I tried to... uh, get the label to to hire George like I ta- I asked I like begged George to uh, save my ass and he said yes but the label wouldn't mm-hmm. pay for it I just paid for it out of my own pocket and dude within two weeks we were in Guitar mm-hmm. World like all the all this stuff we were like getting all the kind of press that you would want on a guitar album and the record didn't get huge or anything but like it has a very good like people who know it love it and they only love it because George got it out mm-hmm. there for them to be able to hear it. Without him, it would have been nothing would have happened at all. Yeah, there's no way we would have been in Guitar World with it, for instance. Yeah, yeah it's a specialized skill set that requires really uh, good relationships, and you know, and it's a really valuable thing to have is the right publicist for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So let's 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 talk about some recording stuff. We've been talking the industry and everything for a little bit. Um, I want to talk about your guitar tones a little bit because they're just thundering. I've listened to a bunch of your records, the Devil Driver, Gojira, the your your new stuff, your latest mixes uh, with Once Human. Your guitar tones are just ridiculous. They're huge, aggressive, clear, like everything you would want in a metal guitar tone. I'm just wondering. If you could Thanks. talk about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, seriously. I, I just call it like I hear cool. it. I mean, it's great stuff. I'm wondering if you think that some of that has to do with the fact that you're a good guitar player or like, I don't know, maybe you could just talk about what some of those ingredients are in your uh, tone pie for guitars. Good player is an important part of guitar tone, no matter who's recording it. Like, obviously, that's the... That's the beginning. <laughs> the guitar itself. I like mahogany body and EMG pickups. I seem to get the best, even if it's a Gibson or an ESP, or I'm playing Ibanez now. Always mahogany body and, and EMG 81s. That's like for me. That's uh, a must. It's like with like with Devil Driver. That was okay. um, that was an EVA. I think that was a. Oh, the 5150. That was a vintage 5150 head with a 57 and a 421 on it through a uh, oversized boogie cab, which actually has uh, 75 watt selections in it. Which uh, for some reason I always sounded better. I still have that cab, um, 
but I don't usually mic cabs much anymore. But um, you use a Kemper. Yeah, I use a Kemper. I, I've and I've profiled like some stuff with that cabinet that I'm talking about, fifty-seven four twenty-one summed, and um, so I've got some good EVH and some fifty-one fifty tones that I made. And they're all in the Kemper now, and I love the Kemper because it's like consistent and convenient, and uh, sounds amazing. Like I, I was blown away. That that piece of gear is the most revolutionary guitar gear in my lifetime because of because of pro- profiling. Thank you. Yeah. I agree. I said the exact same thing when uh, when I got mine in like 2013. I was like, this is. It's a game changer. Yeah, it's all in it. And when you A B when you're profiling and you A B the live tone to the to the profile, it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> I'm sold. So yeah, um and then uh I've got some newer tones that actually these are morphed from the I okay, the once human tone is it started as an old Axe FX preset that was tweaked. And went through uh, Portico, Neve, uh, Rupert Neve Portico channel strip with some pretty drastic EQing, and then back in through a Lynx IO, and then profiled into the Kemper. It's like whatever it's it's <laughs> gone through. It's and I have a few versions of it that my uh, my guitar player, my new guitar player Max Karen, helped with making these tones. Um, yeah, they're like. I'm really happy with this one now. It's like, and so what's on the Once Human Tone? I'm playing uh, seven string with a GCGC FAD tuning. So that's like, it's like a drop C from the top six, and then the low seven string is G, mm-hmm. which gets you down almost as low as like an eight string in standard. And um, with this tone, still I'll have has that clarity, and it gets gives you that super low, heavy, heavy feeling. And um, yeah, it sounds monstrous. Yeah, it's clean and clear, and bites. It's it's a weird like uh, the tone does not work live at all. It's great for recording, and I don't even have to really EQ it in the mix. But like, if you put it through a PA in a club or a, a big venue, it's gonna like rip your fucking ears off and not sound good at all. And so I'm working on like because of the high end. Yeah, because of the high end. Yeah, and uh, interesting. Yeah. So that that I'm actually that's I'm actually curious about that. So because I've seen some other people talk about this, like Misha from Periphery uh, used to talk about his Effects presets. You'd use. I don't know if he still does this. I just remember that he was said that he used a different one for the studio than mm-hmm. live because. Live, he has to dial in way more yep. mids to be heard and not blow out the PA yeah. and everybody's yeah. eardrums. Is that basically what you do? Yeah. You need the low mids and the mid mids, and you need to cut a lot of that top and even be a little bit less gain. And uh, it works, you know, it works in the, for live. So can you talk a little bit about how you go about getting a tone that is monstrous and also clear? Um, I mean, it goes back to the whole, I I feel it and I hear it. (laughs) I start turning fucking knobs and moving mics and blending faders until it's right. You know, like, you know, when it's right. So do you know in advance what you're going for? Or is it one of those things where it's like, you know, you know, when you get there? Yeah. Like right now. Okay. 
I really have like a, f- a few two tones in my camper that I I would go to for preamping in a mix. For example, I haven't like tracked a record. The last record I tracked, besides Once Human, was Butcher Babies, the one that's the current one that's out right now. And I used amps. I used a EVH. I think I used yeah EVH and mics on that. Or wait, did I? I can't remember. But I have basically I've got like a more rock a rock metal tone that's a little bit beefier and then I have the more metal as fuck tone that's cuts more and it's still really clear but it's it's really searing but not painful and um, so if I'm doing mixes and I'm going to reamp depending if what kind of band it is usually I'm doing either like full blown metal or you know something more along active rock slash metal kind of heavy heavy rock kind of stuff so mm-hmm. I kind of just you know and in in reamping I usually have to tweak stuff you know f- for the DI I don't know I don't know what it is I'm using a radial JD7 you, do you feel like something gets lost and I've never put a DI through my radial as on a reamp and felt like I plugged the guitar in to the amp I have to like it's a, I don't know if it's a gain thing or if it's the radial. Do you use radial for reamping? Uh, I use the Kuniberry reamp. And I also, that or I also have a Little Labs Red Eye, which I love. Little Labs was the first reamp box I ever heard of. And it was way, like in 1999. And I remember that one sounding really good. But um, yeah. It's great. It's got tons of headroom. And it's uh, the one that I use is a, both a DI and a reamp. Uh-huh kind of depending what what side you plug into and it just I don't know it just sounds great and I have noticed that with some of the radial stuff sometimes there is a little bit of tone loss it's a little bit I experience like extreme like it almost sounds like when I run a DI straight through it and with the intensity is all the way up on the radio it sounds like the guitar has half half volume oh that yeah I've... yeah so I'm like <laughs> I don't know and I don't know if it's the, the guitar player or the pickup or the way they recorded it or the DI so I, I have to like gain it up and even compress it to contain it from peaking and like get more VU out of the DI coming in to make it hotter and then tweak you know tweak my my settings on the Kemper as well pushing like pretty much pushing everything up a little bit but it works in the end it works but it's never like I never feel like I'm plugged in a guitar and it's the same tone at all so it's it's not I I ask this question to lots of dudes who come on here by the way I'm still waiting for one guy to be like it's the same I don't hear a difference Yeah, let me know. I, I think everybody pretty much agrees. Yeah, if 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 someone comes on and says that, I'll let you know. I'll also let you know what yeah. he's doing because I'm gonna ask him. Because <laughs> I I I have never once in my life been able to get a reamp tone to sound like when you plug yeah. right in, and I don't know anyone else. Who yeah, has. why is it? I mean, so. the whole thing is I don't know the science behind it, but I understand it's like impedance and has turning the line signal back into a guitar signal that's what the rayon box is supposed to do it's supposed to make it yeah so why why is it so difficult why can't they get it right (laughs) i don't know i'm gonna try little labs again (laughs) i don't know (laughs) well the little labs especially on the di side is really really good Mm -hmm. out of the ones i've used that has the most headroom and just has the sparkliest sounding di's 
I've used uh, Countrymen and a radio and the little labs. So, and they're all pretty good. So, yeah, I, I suggest it. So, let's do a rapid fire session where uh, I'm going to name something and then tell me what comes to mind. So, first thing that comes to mind with mm-hmm. it. And it can be a long answer, a short answer, whatever you okay. want to say. So, kick drum. Chicken soup. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, wait. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, okay. Um, kick drum. <laughs> the first thing to get the first yeah. thing to get muted in a mix. Now, not the first thing. I mean, <laughs> no, that's that's a great answer. <laughs> okay, rapid fire. Let's go. Yeah, snare. It's very important to have an organic snare in the mix. So, get it right when you're tracking it. Rhythm guitar, heavy. That's that's my life right there. <laughs> My life in a nutshell. All right. Screaming vocals, female. <laughs> I actually, uh, I love it. I think it's, uh, I think it's cool that like female fronted metal is widely accepted for the most part these days, you know. And I think uh, like Angela era Arch Enemy really made that and solidified that, and then open the doors for it to be accepted. Uh, obviously, I'm in a band with a female, and she's badass and has like a really brutal voice. If you close your eyes, it's like you can't even necessarily know that that's a girl. She's got it, you know, she feels it. It's in her soul. It's what she grew up on. It's who she is. So It's pretty cool that in, in one way, it's sort of, uh, I know, it's a good thing and a bad thing. It categorizes female-fronted bands um, as that. But because of that, there's less competition to stand out within that because you're in that box. There's not as many bands out there, like legitimately doing it with that to compete with and to to like be compared to. So I guess there's an advantage to it in that. And uh, yeah, all in how you work it. Yeah. What about overheads? Uh, U67, KM84. Oh. Oh, you all right? Hold on. U sixty seven. Tell me about that on overheads. So what what's your thinking with that, and what do you like about it? Um, I felt it was warm and and with the right symbols underneath it, it was like it's worked for me really well as like a warm, not not too harsh, uh, sweet overhead sound. So do you use it kind of like as an alternative to the Cam eighty fours? Oh yeah, like instead of depending on, like what depending on what I have to choose. Yeah. yeah, I have done it before. Yeah, yeah. Or do you ever have like do you ever use them both? Like uh, have like two alternate sets of overheads, like one warm, one one. Brighter? I've had uh, you know I I have gone like when I when I can gone gone there and have like uh, another pair uh, a little bit higher up. But normally it's just, uh, I don't normally do that. It's just whatever the best pair of mics that are in the studio for overheads, so that's what I'll use. And usually it's KM84, KM100, or yeah, those 67s, vintage U67s that work nice. I like it. Acoustic guitar in a metal mix. <laughs> oh, God, it's been a while since I've done that. Uh, uh, well, we put a, put a 57 on it on the whole. Or you can put an SM7 on it, and 
probably get as good as if you put like a really nice tube mic on it and then just put CLA unplugged on it and it'll sound great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Um, and what about symphonic elements in a metal mix? Um, I did this record for Septic Flesh. This is a like, do you know the band Septic Flesh? From Greece, oh, yeah. yeah. They're yeah, crazy. they're sick. I, I really like the band. And their orchestral arrangements are impressive and amazing. They had the 60-piece... Yeah, they know what they're the, doing. The Czech Republic Philharm Philharmonic 60-piece recorded. So I get to mix sessions all at 96K, um, about 100 tracks of just orchestra before 22 tracks of drums and, you know, multi-track guitars and da-da-da, layers and bass and vocals. So, like, that was really challenging too because their the orchestral elements are really important for that band but it's like how do you how do a big metal mix and then uh, source tones matter a lot yeah <laughs> I do <laughs> yeah wait so let's talk about that for a second how, how do you approach that like so did you mix down the orchestra first well this is what I did <laughs> I took all the orchestral files and I I hired my friend Gerard Marino, who we talked about earlier, and said, give me back perfectly mixed stems of this shit. Like, so give me back 10 tracks out of 100. Smart. Yeah, and so they, he pre-mixed it like a or beautiful orchestral before I even, you know, put, tried to lay it into the, uh, into the metal with blast beats and, you know, 220 BPM crazy, <laughs> you know, and you know aggressive screaming vocals and guitars so that's yeah for that mix it had to be because i knew like the orchestral elements were so important and had to be have their place i i i had gerard do that uh and then i i could do revisions everything was stemmed down to sections you know so i could i could still change things according to what the band wanted me to push up or push down and but i had them organized in neat you know nicely mixed stems for all the different sections you know that's a wise move yeah. by the way i really strongly believe that delegating is a really good thing to do as and especially when you have the opportunity kind of like what we were talking about earlier with uh with a drum tech like if you know someone who you can hire who's got more expertise yeah. than you at something just yeah. do it it's going to make the project better. Why risk the project when you have access to an expert? Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. So that made it probably a hundred times easier to work with. Yeah, that made it like, you know, completely workable. Um, yeah. Did you have to do a ton of filtering after the fact or just leveling? Uh, mostly leveling, you know, a little bit of filtering depending on what else was happening in the song but um but yeah like that the guy who did the arrangements was very talented and um the parts were beautiful and they're recorded amazing and it was all organic and then gerard being like as top of the game kind of guy for mixing that kind of thing then so yeah nice let's talk let's talk about gojira okay some so those of you listening who don't know, you should know that uh, Logan is our guest mixer on um, 
Nail the Mix this month. He's mixing uh, Toxic Garbage Island by my favorite modern metal band, Gojira, and lots of people's favorite modern metal bands, actually. And from the album The Way of All Flesh, which I remember when that came out, it was like a holy shit moment for production because everybody loved their album before that i still love it but you know it doesn't sound great i think the the quality of the music is the reason people love it not the mix this was the first time hearing them with like a real mix and uh it was just so powerful and i know lots of pro guys you know who put out records that everybody listening to this listens to who use your mix on that as their mm-hmm. reference still now in 2016 and we're talking about a record that came out in 2008 I believe yeah. it's still being used as a reference for lots of guys and that's kind of it's kind of tremendous and also so props congrats and just wow about that and also for me as you know being one of the dudes behind Nail the Mix it's a fucking cool because I for me this is like we don't always do bands that I personally mm-hmm. love, but I personally love this band. So for me, it's it's really, really cool. Um, by the way, those of you listening, if you want to to do this, uh, just go to nailthemix.com slash Gojira, and you will get the actual raw tracks from this, so you can mix it yourself, enter into a mix competition against your peers. We have prizes for the winners from Kush Audio, the first place will win uh, their Omega preamp 500 series that comes with a plug-in that emulates different preamps, and it's incredible. If you know their plugins and hardware, their top-of-the-line stuff, like the Clarifonic EQ, for instance, and you also get a year subscription to their plugins, and then second place is going to get a year subscription to their plugins, and then you also get a live mix with Logan where... You get to watch him mix the song live on video, ask questions, interact, have fun, and learn how historic metal records are made. So now that I'm done plugging the shit out of it, I wanna I wanna talk sure. about it. So how did that <laughs> how how did that come about for you? And just tell tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thank you for the compliment about the mixes and stuff. I uh, appreciate that. I actually used that mix as an A B source as well to to this day. So <laughs> yeah, it's just like so that record. How did it come about? I mean, it's kind of cool the way things happen. And we can go like if I could be long winded here, you can cut it up if you want, whatever. But so be as long winded as you want. Okay. So my first kind of big break in production um, was a mix I did for Roadrunner United, and uh, it was a song that Dino Casares was uh, the producer for on that, you know, that Roadrunner United thing. Um, and I think uh, Roy Mayorga played drums on it, and they just showed up one day at the studio where I was working, and I was like, what are you guys doing here? It was Dave McLean from Machine Head, Roy Mayorga, and Dino and I had Studio B, that was my my place, and they were working in A at Undercity. And so they just they showed up, and I was like, what's up, what are you doing? And they told me what they were doing, and I was like, oh, that's cool, awesome. And I was like, wow, my studio's just next door. If you guys need anything, let me know if you need any help. Because I knew like they probably would, because the room had some bugs. It was It's with a big analog. It's With the SSL, it was a bit glitchy, and so... 
they sure enough they needed some troubleshooting and I came over and helped them out and just by proximity I guess and just being around like Dina was like hey Logan you want to do a guitar track on this one song as a guest and I was like fuck yeah cool give me the file so he gave me the session I went over I did what he wanted me to do but I also mixed the song just because I had it I had the session just <laughs> because I had the session and I was like I wanted to present him the you know what I did and then I cared and I mixed it you know for like three or four hours and it sounded really good and I was stoked so they were like cool that fuck that sounds awesome and then Monty Connor got it and he was like this sounds really good this mix what is this and Colin Richardson was on board to mix Dino's tracks so it ended up where everyone really liked my mix and Colin was still mixing he'd mixed you know, mixed it and was like, they ended up choosing mine over Collins for the record. And that moment... That's quite a win. Yeah. Yeah, I felt... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was a really pivotal, good moment for me. And uh, so, and it was a single and we did, did a video and everything. So that was all like just being in the right place at the right time. And then all that happened. And the things that stemmed from that directly are massive. So that put me on Monty's radar as a legitimate like mixer and producer. So within a matter of a month or so, he had Soulfly come in to for me to produce one song for them. It was for a compilation, a Metal Hammer compilation, a Marilyn Manson cover song. But I hadn't I was in Soulfly put seven years at Gone By. I hadn't really talked to Max. And then there he was in my studio and I was producing and that went really well. So Max and Monty wanted me to produce the first Cavalera Conspiracy record, which happened like another month after that. And then Joseph Duplantier was playing bass. That was a badass record, cool. by the Thanks. way. It was fun to do because it was like the Igor and Max together for the first time since Sepultura split was just like as a great moment to witness. And like... yeah. Yeah, like when I, when they I set them all up and mic'd everything and they were in the room all together and just busted out Refuse Resist for the first time in like, I don't know, 15 years or something. Like the whole room just caught on fire. I was like, fuck, this is, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah, the, that's yeah. incredible. So there I was doing that record and then Joseph Duplantier from Gojira was the guest bass player on the record and we hit it off and... He liked working with me, so that's how The Way of All Flesh came into my studio. And the way we did that was they came over and I, I recorded the drums and in that same room there. It was at Undercity in North Hollywood. And uh, edited the drums, and then they took the files back. And Joe tracked the guitars and the vocals and the bass, just like he had always done. He He's, you know, the really the producer for Gojira, kind of always has been. Mm -hmm. um, but so I came in for drum tracking and editing and then and then mixing when they were done with the tracking. And so that's, um, yeah, that's that's how I got to the Gojira record from. Can we talk about the drummer for a yeah. second? What's his deal? Why is he so damn good? <laughs> He's like, yeah, he's the best metal drummer, um, probably the best metal drummer that I've ever recorded. I think I think he's pretty much the best metal yeah, drummer. he's amazing. He feels it. And I think that the, the connection with him and his brother is very tight and very close. Like, they are like one. So that helps a lot in the general vibe of their music, I think. 
It's like that feeling amplified, you know, by two. So like the Pantera thing. Yeah. Yeah. That interesting because he's got something that a lot of guys don't which is not only is he technical as shit but he hits really fucking hard and he grooves like crazy like usually he hits loud you get one yeah you get one or two of those usually with drummers usually they hit hard and they groove but they're not technical or they're technical and they groove but they don't hit hard yeah like you don't normally have all three of them. Yeah, he goes. He's got and finesse like a motherfucker. Like, and also hitting hard and hitting loud uh, to me are two different things. Like, you can have a big strong arm and hit things with sticks, but if you don't do it with the right finesse, it's not gonna. You know, yeah. it's gonna hit hard with the right kind of hard when you know when you really know what you're doing and you really feel it. And he's got like just tons of feel. That's what's like, amazing about him. Yeah, it's uh, and his musical mind. The complexity of his rhythmic mind is like pretty fucking out there too. Like one of uh, one of the songs was like the eighteen bar fr- one phrase was eighteen bars, and I'm like, how? Oh, f- I'm like looking at the chart, and I'm like, <laughs> you actually count that? You know, <laughs> you know, he's just I feel it, but he had to chart it out, and like, yeah, it's cool. So they chart their shit. Well, he he do- he did on some like that. I forget the title, but it was like. It's the one that has this really cool groove, odd time intro with a lot of the percussive metal sounds happening too, which they do that, uh, uh, I can't remember the song title, but the phrase was 18 bars. So it was like, it was in, I don't know, 78 over 18. I don't know what, what the what the meter <laughs> is, but it was like pretty much pushing it to the limit, but still totally groove. I've noticed that lots of those drummers who are like that level, right? They'll chart the yeah. shit out. Uh, there's this dude, Alex Runinger, who's like a uh, the. Ex- I think he's like the best extreme metal drummer um, I've ever worked with. Certainly one of the best in the world, and he reads while mm-hmm. he records the whole way mm-hmm. through. He charts everything out, and it's like a fucking. It's like a blast beat machine. Yeah. It's really impressive stuff. Lots of the guys who are that good tend to write their stuff. I've yeah. So let's talk about the mix some, because the guys that are going to be working on this, I believe, are going to have a challenge in front of them. Um, what to you was the biggest challenge about it? Well, first of all, I'm really excited to do that. It's going to be fun. I haven't opened that. Obviously, that was done in 2007. I did that mix, and... Uh, I was working on an old, even at the time, it was an older system, Pro Tools 5.1.3 OS 9 uh, with an average 88,000 and like, you know, TDM cards, the old TDM cards. And so I can't even, I don't have that rig anymore. And obviously <laughs> it is vintage Pro Tools, I guess. But uh, so there was proprietary plugins involved in making that mix that sound the way it does that I don't have now that they don't even make for newer Pro Tools that as far as I know and uh, so I'm gonna start from scratch but the source tones are what they are they're good I mean um, the guitar tones these are uh, EVH they're really when you listen to them solo they're really not very gainy and they don't sound really aggressive by themselves, but in the mix, they sound, because of the way Joe plays, he picks really hard and with a lot of feeling. And 
there's a lot of good note in there, and there's enough bite to make them sound really aggressive, and it allows for the overheads to not get involved in the top end. And so getting the clarity with the guitars to drums is really not that hard, as I remember with those source tones. And um, I mean, I remember uh, I didn't even gate the snare. Like this snare 57 top snare mic was like right in the center because of the way his drum kit was really tight and really with a lot of shit. I had to get in between the two rack toms, like directly center, facing the drummer basically. It wasn't an ideal place for me to put a snare mic normally, but it worked. Uh, the bleed was, was wide open on the snare, and there's a lot of organic snare in the mix. I'm not sure like you know, how I'm going to approach that when I remix it now. I'm going to do it just like I would now. So that, that'll, that'll mm -hmm. be fun and nostalgic in a way and like I'm probably gonna you know A-B it to the the mat you know the album album master yeah and maybe do some other stuff but I'm just gonna have fun with it and uh, make it sound as good as I can in the period of time that we have and um, there's uh, the symbols of like SM81 the, uh, the overheads are SM81 but it's the, they should sound good like they I mean they do sound good and uh he has the right symbols in the room that we picked. He went. We went down to. Um, he just had a big selection of symbols, and I think we borrowed a couple as well. And so the symbols sound good. The toms in the mix, original mix, are 100% organic with no samples on there, and they sound good. Was there any sample on the snare? In the yeah, in the mix that I did, there was there was some use of snare sample, but I mean, I remember. And you can hear it's it's mostly organic. I would say it was eighty percent organic. They, my first mixes of or my first like pass of one of the songs, it had a lot more sample than they wanted, and they wanted it organic. And they were like, turn the sample down, 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 like even turn it off. So yeah, there's, and I never really loved the organic snare that he wanted to use and the way he wanted to tune it, but he really, it was his thing and that's what he wanted, so that's what we went with. And it has a lot of character and so it works, but... How do you feel about it now? When I listen to that mix now, I feel like, in, in certain songs, like for in Toxic Garbage, for example, I think like, I think I can make that snare sound better than it does uh, on the album now. Just with more experience and more tools, I think, that I have now. But But when I hear it, yeah, but... But when I hear it, it's cool. It wor it works, like it's you know, it it works with the song and works with the mix, and it sounds like a drummer. You feel you know you feel that like the drummer's hitting it. What about kick? I didn't. Okay, so he recorded with two kicks because he likes to play with two kicks, and I don't like recording two kick drums because usually one sounds not as good as the other one, um, mm -hmm. even if they're identical and everything is like lined up right it's like still one of them doesn't sound the same so and I didn't really love the kick sound that I had on either of them and I remember turning them off and it's all sample and I've got samples in there the samples that I used on uh, the, re the record or in the session but they're isolated left and right foot because there was two drums you know so that makes it easy to sort of fake the the two kick thing by altering the level slightly on the on the double bass parts you know just sort of simulate drummer by uh, a little bit less velocity on the left foot you know or a slightly different 
attack mm-hmm. tone on the left foot so you hear you don't just hear a machine um so that that's in there and um yeah that's that's about it it's pretty straightforward what about bass yeah this is um again joe tracked the bass at his place and i think i think all he used is a sans amp pedal but i'm not sure i can't remember what he said and uh, i gotta look at it i'll look tonight when i uh when i send that to you but uh I think there's just one bass track on there to choose from, <laughs> but it sounded good. So I, yeah, nice. Yeah, so it matters. Yeah. Was there anything challenging in balancing the vocals or anything like that? Mm, nothing. No, nothing out of the ordinary. Like he's a, he's not like a kind of singer that stacks up tons of vocals to, and uh, so I think there's often one vocal and then it's doubled. He's a he does a lot of single vocal stuff and then doubles parts like choruses it's interesting to me like the uh so it's like he's not using too many doubles like a lot of it's natural mm-hmm. and it just goes to show that when a band is awesome you don't need to do as yeah. much you don't need to do like 18 layers of vocals <laughs> to hide to, to make up for the fact I'm that the person <laughs> sounds like a di- dying cat yeah <laughs> Or you say you're not even going to There's comment. so many things I could say right now, but I'm just not going to. <laughs> uh, I, I'm pro- we're probably thinking of the same person, but uh, or a, a similar type of situation. Yeah. But yeah, there's some vocalists who just suck. <laughs> that The only way to uh, make them sound good is to layer them so many times. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And then, you know, whenever I hear that, I just, you, the more you layer the more you lose the uh, the feeling and the emotion, you know? Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah, like with Once Human, Lauren, she's single vocal all the way through, except choruses, there'll be doubles. And sometimes like with the tonal nice. screams, I'll do a triple, but she's like single vocal all the way through. And, and it's like when, yeah, you really feel it. It's intimate and it's clear and personal. So Something to be said for knowing how to... Uh perform on your instrument so anyways man thank you so much for coming on we're kind of reaching that time we got to cut this off but uh it's been awesome talking to you too man and yeah i had a great time and i can't wait to watch you mix on january 4th i believe yeah looking forward to that we're gonna be at the hideout probably you think or we don't we don't know yet i believe so i believe so yeah I don't know what room, but uh, yeah. I believe so. Cool, it's gonna be sick. Looking forward to that. That's gonna be my my second time there in like two nice. months. It's a yeah, nice place amazing for what it looks like. Actually, that's an understatement. It's like, amazing, uh, not nice place. It looks it looks incredible. Yeah, I'm I'm stoked. Yeah, it's my go to when I have budget to go to track drums. That's my go to room. And uh, yeah, I mean they've got everything. That you want there. He's got like a fifty thousand dollars stereo Fairchild if you want to roll that in, and he's got like these vintage Neumann M50s that are like a hundred grand microphone, like a hundred grand for the pair. Kind of like he's got some toys going on in there that uh, are fun to play with, and then the facility itself is is beautiful. It's just perfect. It looks yeah. like it. Like it looks it looks yeah. stunning. So I'm uh, I'm stoked cool. about it. Well thanks dude. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Kush Audio, a premium manufacturer of top quality audio hardware and plugins. The high end just got higher. Visit thehouseofkush.com for more information. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.